Amen. Well, the verses that we are going to be looking at this morning are verses 16 and 17 of Psalm 51. We'll spend our time here. So I want to read them to you again, and then we'll jump straight away, uh, straight away into it. It says, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. So it's telling that David dismisses the need for sacrifice. The reason being that the sacrificial system was instituted for this very thing. By making offering and sacrifice, a sinner could make atonement for their sin and be restored to right standing before the Lord. An animal, typically a bull or a goat, goat, was slain in their place. And subsequently their sin was covered. But the king says, God does not delight in sacrifice, and neither is he pleased with burnt offering. Now it seems a very strange thing to say, especially for someone in such dire need of forgiveness. Yet, he does not dismiss sacrifice altogether. True sacrifice is not the sacrifice of bulls and goats, but offering one's heart to the Lord. The sacrifices of God, he says, are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And so it seems that Although the people of God offered physical sacrifice, that was never the issue. Speaking in the voice of God, the psalmist says, Psalm chapter 50, Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? The prophet likewise asks, Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and in ten thousand rivers of oil? The questions are rhetorical, and the answer is no. God does not require sacrifice for its own sake. As if the burnt flesh and the poured out blood were the things that the Lord desired. Augustine says, God does not require these sacrifices for their own sakes. He requires the sacrifice which they symbolize. So the animals themselves that were offered up in the temple were only a secondary matter. The poured out blood and the burnt carcass were only symbols. The true sacrifice, David says, is the inward one, the sacrifice of the heart. And so what pleases the Lord is not the slaughtering of animals, offered in sacrifice, but the heart offered in sacrifice. That is the true sacrifice. And whenever Israel began to get away from this, whenever Israel got this wrong, and they began to think that the sacrifice itself was pleasing to God, prophetic voices rose to their rebuke. The infamous passage of Isaiah chapter 1 comes to mind. The Lord says, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? 
I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams, and I take no pleasure in burnt and sorry in the blood of bulls, lambs, and goats. As long as the nation lived unrighteously, as long as their hearts were far from the Lord, their sacrifices were null and void. The Lord says, they don't please me. I don't want them. Instead of sacrifice, the prophet Micah asks, What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Hosea adds his voice to the mix. Speaking in the voice of the Lord, he says, For I delight in compassion rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. It's clear then, the purpose of the sacrificial system. It was not instituted as a means of sin's removal, but as a teacher that sin needed to be dealt with. In Hebrews 10, a text we'll turn to later, the author describes the sacrificial system as a reminder of sin year by year. It was there to constantly recall the presence of an obstacle that was in need for something to remove it. While the sacrifices might symbolize the solution, they were unable to effect it. Because the blood of bulls and of goats is impossible to take away sin. Ultimately, these sacrifices that were offered year by year in the temple, were not pleasing to God. They were insufficient, and He wanted something more. And so this, the impotence of the sacrificial system, its inability to take away sin, it takes us to the very heart of the matter. Sacrifice is really about obedience, Sacrifice is really about obedience. Again, what is pleasing to the Lord is not our offering of animals and goods or whatever it else may be, but our very selves, our hearts, our wills, our decisions. In other words, our obedience. One rabbi used to say that God considers the soul of a man a worthy sacrifice. God wants to look down to his creatures and see them doing his will, not as a tyrant demanding conformity, but as wanting to see his own love and glory and beauty reflected back to him in the creation that he's made. Loving obedience, that is true sacrifice. And Saul as we know, found this out the hard way. The prophet Samuel rebuked him, to obey is better than to sacrifice. And take another psalm, Psalm 40, which we just read, verses 6 and 8. It says, Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ear, ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. 
God has not required sacrifice or offering, even sin offering, but instead one's very life offered up in obedience to Him. The sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God is obedience, delighting to do His will. And at this point, a picture of what sacrifice is begins to emerge. At its most fundamental, sacrifice is a gift. It's an offering to the Lord. When we look at the Old Testament, there's much more going on than sacrifice as merely covering sin. Sacrifice is also an offering to the Lord, rendering something back to Him. The very word offering in Hebrew means to draw near or to give a gift. Sacrifice is a drawing nigh, an approach in love to the God who graciously approaches His people in love. Sacrifice is the creature's response to the Creator. He moves toward us in creation and redemption. And sacrifice is our response. Sacrifice is our movement back to God. Our offering to what He has done for us. And so as it is, the creature's only appropriate response to the Creator's generosity is to return their entire being to Him. Their loving obedience. I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. And so you might think of it this way. Sacrifice is everything the Lord requires of humanity. Worship, obedience, etc. It can all be classified under this one heading. Take, for example, the Apostle Paul's words in Romans 12. After expounding the fullness of the gospel, all that God has done on our behalf He says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. The entirety of our response to God is summed up up under that heading, sacrifice. The redeem's fitting reply to the Redeemer is to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice. As God has given Himself over for us, we are to give ourselves over to God in love and obedience. This is our sacrifice. It is, quite simply, what we owe to God. Not in the sense that He is a debt collector, but rather in the sense of right response. We owe to Him a debt of love and gratitude for His goodness toward us. Our sacrifice is the response of the loved to the lover. God has loved us, therefore we return our sacrifice in love to Him, our offering. So the Lord delights in a life offered up in obedience to Him, but... In this, the king has fallen terribly short. Rather than loving obedience, King David has returned scorn and disdain to the Lord. And as a result, he has nothing 
to offer up. He has no sacrifice to make. The only thing he can muster to return to the Lord is his broken heart itself. That's what he gives to the Lord. And as we've been saying all throughout our journey through Psalm 51, is that the king situation is a microcosm of the entire human race. God looks to us expecting to see his love and beauty reflected back to him. Our lives offered up in obedience. And what he sees is just the opposite. He sees disobedience and disfigurement, his love scorned by us. And what we're talking about here is the problem of sin just configured, translated into a different register. Another way of saying that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God is to say that all have failed to respond to the Lord with proper sacrifice. Humans have failed to return love for love, to respond properly to God's gift with loving obedience. We'll talk more about that in a minute, but right now it's important that we understand that the sacrifice that God desires is nothing other than a heart sincerely offered to Him, a spirit that is wounded by its own failure. And it seems this, that recognition is the soul's final movement of repentance. It recognizes that it has nothing of value to offer and simply holds out its own sorrow as a sacrifice. One's sorrow and brokenness is put on the altar, as it were, and burned as an offering to God. And the aroma that rises is pleasing to Him. Not that He delights in our sorrow, but that He accepts it as a means of repentance. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And it's a hauntingly beautiful image. King David, broken to pieces, holding out his contrite heart in sacrifice to God. And that image says a lot about us. The nature of our condition, the utter bankruptcy of our offering, our inability to return God's love properly. But it also says a lot about God. That He is not severe or demanding. That in our failure, He simply requires our heartfelt contrition. It's not that He requires something from us. A sacrifice of some sort to make restoration and atonement. Because what could we possibly offer back to God? There's that passage in Amos where He says, What am I going to offer as a ransom for my sin, my firstborn son? There's nothing He can possibly give. Rather, our sacrifice when falling into sin is simply the sacrifice of a broken heart. To offer it up to the Lord and say, this is all I have to give back to you. So it's important to remember this when sin comes upon us as it inevitably will. God does not desire that we would placate Him with some renewed commitment to obedience. Bargaining our way out of His wrath. Making promises that we're never going to fail Him again. Rather, He simply desires our heartfelt and honest contrition. He doesn't ask for us more than we can give in this matter. 
And so we need not frantically look about for something to appease him. But again, simply offering our broken heart. And a broken heart, David says, the Lord will not despise. Meaning he will not turn it away. Meaning the Lord will not write it off, but that he will accept it. In fact, the scriptures tell us, Isaiah 66, 2, But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and of contrite spirit. This is the one I will look at. So, all humanity can do is offer up its broken-hearted sacrifice. But if we think about our condition, that's the best we can do. Just say, Lord, I'm sorry, I've failed. Here's what I have. But, we cannot offer up the very thing that's required of us. Loving obedience. The one thing that the Lord requires from the creature. That's the thing we can't give back. Our sacrifice, our response to God, remains incomplete. And so the problem might be stated this way. Humanity has failed its vocation. By failing to offer, our sacrifice, offer ourselves rather as living sacrifices, we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as such, a certain debt is owed by us. The creature's side of the covenant is yet to be completed. Proper response and loving obedience is still required of us. Though we can't offer it, there's a debt there. It needs to be satisfied. And so the question is, who will render a sacrifice to God worthy of His name? And this, of course, is where Christ enters the picture. He becomes, as it were, the living sacrifice that humanity failed to be. God becomes man. And in man's form, He upholds the creature's side of the covenant. He embodies the proper response to God's love. One theologian, David Bentley Hart, put it this way, Christ takes up the human story and tells it correctly by giving the correct answer to God's summons. In his life and death, he re-narrates humanity according to its true pattern of loving obedience. And so at its most primal, that is what Christ's life and death was, an offering of love to God. As Ephesians 5.2 puts it, Christ loved you and gave himself, up, gave himself up for us, an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Christ giving himself over to us for our salvation was also, and most fundamentally, a sacrifice to God, a pleasing aroma to the Father. And so in Christ, in whom there was no sin, but only loving obedience, I only do what pleases the Father. The perfect response, the true sacrifice, is at last given to God. On our behalf, Christ gives to God a gift worthy of God. In this sense, as we just read, He takes up the human story and He tells it correctly. He, been, he was what we should have been. He loved God the way we should have loved God. He answered 
God summons correctly with his loving obedience. That's why the scripture calls Jesus the second Adam. He's the new head of the human race in whose obedience we are justified. And so thus, what the temple sacrifices symbolized, what they themselves were unworthy sacrifices, finds its reality and its fulfillment in Christ. He offered the sacrifice obedience of obedience, not a ritual sacrifice. He gave himself on a cross, not on an altar, at the place of a skull, not in the temple. And the author of Hebrews details this for us. It's a rather large portion of scripture, but bear with me. He says, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of the things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have a consciousness, have had consciousness um, of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings, and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, for you have taken no pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this we have been sanctified, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So let's unpack that. The sacrifices and offerings made continually at the temple, the author of Hebrews says, were unable to make perfect those who offered them, as we've been saying. The reason why is because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Because, as we've seen, what God desires is not animal sacrifice, but obedience. So these animal sacrifices, whatever merit they might have had, it wasn't as a permanent removal of sin. Obedience needed to be there for sin to be removed. Instead, he says, these sacrifices were a reminder of sin year by year. Unable to remove the problem themselves, they were merely a constant symbol that there was a problem and that that problem awaited a permanent solution. Then, the author of Hebrews introduces Psalm 40, a psalm that we've already considered. However, he identifies the speaker of this psalm not as David, its original author, but he says, these, in fact, are the words of Jesus Christ. And these words are spoken by the Son to the Father in eternity prior to the incarnation. He says, when he comes into the world, he says. The Son understands that sacrifices and offerings are not pleasing to the Father. That ultimately he does not desire them. What he he desires is obedience. And for this reason, a body is prepared for the Son that he would assume in his incarnation. 
And as he enters the world, these words are on his lips and in his heart. Behold, I have come to do your will. So Christ's human body is given as a means through which obedience, a pleasing gift, and a worthy sacrifice might be rendered to God on our behalf. He assumes human form that he might give God a worthy gift. And through Christ's offering, the author says, our lives are made holy. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin and sanctify, but the blood of Christ does. A little earlier, the author of Hebrews said in chapter 9, verse 14, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And it's not the blood itself that cleanses us, but what the blood symbolizes. His actual blood poured out on the cross does not possess some sort of inherent power, and we should be careful not to attribute it those type of qualities, but rather... The power lies in what the blood symbolizes. Perfect, loving obedience to the point of death. A spotless offering and one without blemish. That is what cleanses us from our sin. And because we are baptized into Christ, our lives are covered in His sacrificial offering. Humanity in Him, you and I, we are remade. The Father no longer sees our miserable and wretched attempts to make true sacrifice. Rather, He sees Christ's pleasing offering. United to Him, bound to Him, Christ's offering is our offering. That's what the Lord sees. That's what the Lord accepts. And so when Christians, when we come across the language of sacrifice and offering in the New Testament we instinctively assume that it's metaphorical. The literal sacrifices were the ones offered by the priesthood, performed in the temple, the slaughtering of animals, smearing their blood on the altar and burning their bodies. Our sacrifices, the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, are the metaphorical ones. We call what we do sacrifice, but it's not real sacrifice. But that's simply not true. In fact, we have it exactly backwards. Our sacrifices are the real sacrifices, whereas theirs, the author of Hebrews said, were merely a shadow of the good things to come. Christ has made an acceptable offering once for all, and thus in Him, we are empowered to do the same. His priestly role, making sacrifice and offering to God, is transmitted to us. We are a holy priesthood instituted to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. In other words, Christ has restored us to our original vocation. We are empowered to make true sacrifice once again. So listen to the author of Hebrews a little bit later on. He says, Hebrews 13, 15, and 16, Through Him then, Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So, 
the Trinity's movement of love toward us, redeeming and rescuing us, calls forth a response. That as God gave Himself for us, we might give ourselves back to Him as a living and holy sacrifice. That we might respond to God's love with love of our own. It brings to mind a song by Matt Redman. He says, Jesus, what can I give, what can I bring to so faithful a friend, to so loving a king? Savior, what can be said, what can be sung as a praise of your name for the things you have done? Oh, my words could not tell, not even in part, of the debt of love that is owed by this thankful heart. Our sacrifice does not arise from duty, nor does it derive from fear, but it springs from a debt of love. And the content of our sacrifice is twofold. To continually offer up the sacrifice of praise to God, and to do good and to share. Our sacrifice, in other words, is to love our God and to love our neighbor. With these things, with these sacrifices, God is well pleased.